The Da Da Di Da Da Code by Robert Rankin. Chapter 10. Johnny Hooker tore the tiny earphones from his head. He handed back the iPod to the Ranger. That was a bit quick, said Ranger Hawtrey. You want to listen longer than that before you make up your mind. Make up my mind, Johnny Hooker said these words slowly. If he could make up his own mind, he would make it up out of concrete and surround the thing with steel. Are you all right? asked Ranger Hawtrey. You seem to have gone somewhat pale. I'm fine, said Johnny, who was anything but. That iPod is yours, is it? My brother's, actually. I gave it to him as a birthday present, but he heard the voices speaking to him from it at once, so he gave it straight back to me. Johnny Hooker gave Ranger Hawtrey what is known as the quote-unquote old-fashioned look. What? said Ranger Hawtrey. Well, all right, yeah, said Ranger Hawtrey. I'd always wanted an iPod. Ranger Hawtrey now took off his cap. He mopped his brow with an oversized red gingham handkerchief. The cap lay in his lap with its insides upwards, as it were, and Johnny spied these upwards innards. Tinfoil, said Johnny Hooker. Your cap is lined with tinfoil. No, it's not, said Ranger Hawtrey, hastily replacing the cap upon his head. It is, said Johnny, and you know it is, and you know I know that it is. Look, said Ranger Hawtrey, like I say, I don't know whether my brother is mad or whether he really is persecuted by hidden enemies. And if he is being persecuted by hidden enemies, whether these enemies are ghosts or devils or transdimensional space beings or the bloody heirloom gang itself, the what? said Johnny. The heirloom gang. Surely you've heard of the heirloom gang. Curiously, no. No, I suppose not. I only came across them by chance when I was trawling the internet for information about my brother's supposed medical condition. And it did all happen a very long time ago, in the 1790s as it happens. But it's interesting stuff, and it made me think. Go on, said Johnny. There was this mental patient, said Ranger Hawtrey, settling himself back on the bench and tucking away his oversized red gingham handkerchief. His name was James Tilly Matthews, and he had been an English secret agent, a kind of James Bond of his day. Well, somehow or other, and I'm not entirely sure of all of the details, author's note, if you would like to read all of the details, type Illustrations of Madness by John Haslam, 1810, into your search engine, Jobby. He got it into his head that a certain gang had managed to actually get inside his head using a piece of equipment called the heirloom. This contraption was an amazing bit of kit, designed and built by someone named Count Otto Black, and operated by someone known as the Glove Woman. It was fueled by all manner of noxious fumes and gases, and by the careful manipulation of its keyboard, a kind of magnetic flux, or ray, could be projected through solid objects, like walls and such like, into the head of their intended victim and then his thoughts could be manipulated. And this was the 1790s? asked Johnny. Apparently so. The first documented case of a mental patient who was convinced that his thoughts were being tampered with by a quote-unquote influencing machine. They threw him into St. Mary of Bethlehem's hospital, the original Bedlam. He was there for 12 years, lucid for most of the time, but 
as with most mental institutions, if you're not mad when you go in, you'll be mad by the time they let you out. If they ever let you out. What about your brother? said Johnny. He's in the special wing at the cottage hospital, said Ranger Hawtrey. And I'll tell you this. If I ever meet that loon who did for Dr. Archie, I'll shake him by the hand. That doctor treated my brother very badly. What a very small world it is, thought Johnny. But tell me more about this heirloom, he said. I'm fascinated by this. It's at least a hundred years before its time. You can almost picture someone actually building something like that in the late Victorian era. But the 1790s, no way to that. Ranger Hawtrey shrugged. And so I have tinfoil inside my cap, just to be on the safe side. Perhaps there was an heirloom. Perhaps the CIA and the British Secret Service have modern-day equivalents. I just don't know. But I'd like to believe that my brother isn't mad. But then, wouldn't anyone? Johnny Hooker nodded. Actually, I have heard of Count Otto Black, he said. He's some kind of unkillable supervillain who turns up again and again, century after century. Or so I read somewhere. But I appreciate your candor, confiding all this to me, a total stranger. I trust you, said Ranger Hawtrey. Which is to say that I told you because I knew you wouldn't laugh. You did? How did you know that? I just did. Ranger Hawtrey stuck his hand out to Johnny. Shake, he said. Shake, said Johnny, and he shook the ranger's hand. And thank you for killing Dr. Archie, said Ranger Hawtrey. What? went Johnny, and he fell back in horror. I won't turn you in. You recognized me? Not you. Well, not at once. It was the uniform I recognized. You're wearing my old uniform. I figured that you'd found the key under the flower pot, gone into the hut, found the uniform, then we turned up. So you concocted the story about being at college. So you knew all along? said Johnny. And I know that you're not a dangerous madman. Did you kill Dr. Archie, by the way? No, said Johnny. I didn't. I punched him and escaped through the window of his office. But I certainly didn't hit him hard enough to kill him. I thought not. What do you mean you thought not? When did you think not? When I saw your face come up on the television. You see, I saw the drowning child, too. You did? said Johnny. I saw it. It was there. And then it wasn't. They did drag the pond to make sure, but there was no body. But I did see the child. Then perhaps you're as mad as I am. I'm not mad, said Ranger Hawtrey, and nor, I suspect, are you. Ah, said Johnny. Well, we'd probably best not go into that in any detail. But you're not going to turn me in? Certainly not. You're the most exciting thing that's happened in this park since I've been working here. Thanks a lot, said Johnny. But what about your boss? Ranger Connor wouldn't recognize his own face in a mirror. And I reckon he's going to get sacked pretty soon. He's a bit too free with his fists. Always looking for an excuse to employ his Dimac. I can vouch for that, said Johnny. He's instigated a dress code for people using the park, said Ranger Hawtrey. Quite unofficially, of course. If he sees some young bloke in sportswear, he chucks them out of the park. But surely a park is the kind of place where you can wear sportswear. You'd think so, wouldn't you? But he hates chavs. Who doesn't? said Johnny. So the park is pretty much a chav-free zone, and if they show up again after he's barred them, 
He gives them a sound roughing up. Part of me is starting to really like him, said Johnny. Shall we stroll on? Are you sure you don't want to listen to They Might Be Giants some more? No, said Johnny, but thank you very much. And thank you for not turning me in. And thank you for your conversation. You've given me much to think about. Ranger Hawtree and Ranger Chickatine strolled on together, and there was quite a ruckus going on in Johnny's head. An internal dialogue, unheard and unguessed at by Ranger Hawtree. We'd best get out of here, said Mr. Giggles. This young loon will turn you in at the first possible opportunity. No, he won't, said Johnny. Oh, yes, he will. He's just waiting until they've posted a reward. I'm not worried about it, said Johnny. It's that voice on his iPod that worries me. And what voice was that? Interesting. What? You didn't hear it? Didn't hear what? A voice? What voice? I'm sure that if I find out, you will be the first to know. What did it say, the voice? I'm not telling you. You can't have secrets from me, Johnny. It would appear that I can. Tell me, did you get one of these? What? One of these? The voice belonged to Ranger Hawtree. One of what? Johnny asked. One of these, and Ranger Hawtree fished an envelope from a jacket pocket. He seemed to have so many things in his pockets. iPod, oversized red gingham handkerchief, and now an envelope. Golly. It's a competition thingy, said Ranger Hawtree. Although I can't understand how exactly you win whatever it is that you win. He opened the envelope and displayed its contents to Johnny. Johnny laughed which was something he rarely did. That, said he, is indirectly, or directly, I'm not certain which, is the reason why I'm in all the trouble I'm presently in. I determined that I would crack the da-da-dee-da-da code and win whatever there was to be won, and my life, crap as it was, has become ten times as crap since then. The da-da-dee-da-da code, said Ranger Hawtrey. That would make a good name for a book. Yeah, right, said Johnny with me as the hero. Well, I don't know about that, but what do you think about the letter? I think that I will crack the code, said Johnny. I think that, given that all that's happened to me so far, it might even be important that I do crack the code. Good on you, said Ranger Hawtrey. Perhaps we could work together on it. No, said Johnny. I don't think so. It's not that I'm greedy for whatever the prize is and unwilling to share. It's just that you could get yourself into as much trouble as me. You cannot attribute your troubles directly to your search, said Ranger Hawtrey. It could just be coincidence. I'm not sure I believe in coincidence. All right, if you don't want my help, tell me at least how you intend to go about cracking the code. Do the obvious, said Johnny. Trace where the letter was printed. That might be all that's necessary to win the prize. Do you really think so? Ranger Hawtrey looked all excited. You look all excited, said Johnny Hooker. Well, of course I do, said Ranger Hawtrey, because I know where it was printed. Chapter 11 All right, said Johnny Hooker. Perhaps I am prepared to give the concept of coincidence the benefit of the doubt. You know where the letters were printed. How do you know that? Because they were printed right here in the park, in the museum. How do you know that? Did you see them being printed? No, but I recognize the typeface. It's very distinctive. I'm sure you agree. It's somewhat old-fashioned, said Johnny. I noticed that. It was done on the Protein Man's printing machine. The Protein Man? 
asked Johnny. He's not one of the heirloom gang, is he? A minion of Count Otto Black? Ranger Hawtrey made a face. His name was Stanley Owen Green, said he, and he was a pamphleteer, born in 1915 and died in 1993. He was famous in his way. He had this bee in his bonnet about sex, and about how too many people were having too much of it too often, and why. He developed the philosophy that he called protein wisdom. It was based on how the simple principle that children need protein in order to grow, but adults don't, and the excess protein in their system fuels excess sexual activity. His slogan was, less lust from less protein, and he took to the streets of London to preach his message. And I bet he didn't get too many converts, said Johnny. Not too many, especially as he begun his preaching in 1968 in the heyday of the swinging 60s. He used to walk up and down Oxford Street, wearing sandwich boards and distributing his pamphlets, which were entitled, Eight Passion Proteins with Care. And he did that right through until 1993, when he died. And when he died, his relatives bequeathed his printing machine to the museum. The moment I saw this letter, I recognized the type. There's samples of his stuff in the basement store. There's no mistake, I'm sure. Incredible, said Johnny. Incredible. Stuff and nonsense, said Mr. Giggles. Let's make our getaway now. Do you think I could see the machine, if we can come up with some legitimate-sounding reason for going into the basement? Getting into the basement will not be a problem, said Johnny. So we're going to work on this together, then? We'll see, said Johnny. We'll see. Johnny hadn't been into Gunnersbury Park Museum since he was a child, as is often the way with folk in museums. But the beauty of museums, well, some museums, is that they withstand the slings and arrows and outrageous management and remain the same tiny magical time capsules. You were there, and you are there again, and virtually nothing has changed. A few bits of necessary renovation, updated security systems, a new ticket booth, something hands-on for the modern kitties, but for the most part, unchanged, said Johnny. And he stood before the transport collection, having sneaked past the lady on the desk with his head down, gazing up at the handsome cab. It's just the same. The handsome cab, did you know that this cab was still in service in Ealing up until 1933? I did, said Ranger Hawtrey. Who did? And the pony phaeton, said Johnny. Don't you just love the pony phaeton? Not as much as I love the Rothschilds town and traveling carriages. It's wonderful, and Johnny was entranced. There had been a time, oh so long ago, when he had been happy. When he had been a child, and when his daddy had still been alive. His daddy had always loved museums. In fact, every time the Hooker family went on holiday to some English seaside resort or another, it would inevitably turn out that the real reason for this particular resort being chosen by the daddy was because the daddy had ascertained that there was some particularly interesting private museum or another that he felt would be interesting and educational for his family to visit. And Johnny had loved these visits. He had loved his daddy and his daddy's enthusiasm for the wonders of old museums had rubbed off on his son. And his daddy had a certain technique. Johnny's daddy knew, as most people who know anything about museums know, that only about one-third, if that, of a museum's collection is ever on display to the public. The rest languishes unseen in storerooms beneath. In fact, that is where the really interesting stuff is. And Johnny's daddy had this technique. On the Monday of the holiday, he would take Johnny to the museum. He would lead Johnny around, speaking with knowledge of all those things that he had knowledge of. 
and then he would fall into conversation with the museum's curator and employ his silken tongue, because the daddy did have a silken tongue, something that Johnny did not appear to have inherited. The daddy would speak of his son's interest in museums and the sad fact that so much of the museum's collection remains forever unseen by the public, and how future generations must learn the wonder of museums, and how much it would impress itself upon the mind of his little son here, the lad, if he could be granted a glimpse of the hidden collection that lay beneath. And it was a very hard and ill-fated curator who was not moved by the daddy's words, and who, at least by the Wednesday, had not granted the daddy and the lad a private viewing of the wonders that lay in the storeroom beneath. Johnny could recall with perfect clarity a museum in Bournemouth where he had not only viewed, but had been allowed to hold. The lad would really like to hold that. A shrunken human head. The product of the Hivaro tribe of the Amazon. The head was supposedly that of a Jesuit missionary, but Johnny had suspected that it was nothing of the sort because it had pierced ears. Pierced ears. The shrunken head had pierced ears. And that had stuck in Johnny's memory. That and the way the hair felt. Human hair on a dead shrunken head. Johnny remembered how, after his father had profusely thanked the curator for taking him and the lad below, they had left the museum and walked out hand in hand into the bright summer sunlight, traveling from one world to another. Heavy stuff. Are you okay? asked Ranger Hawtrey. You've gone all far away and misty-eyed. Memories, said Johnny. A museum will do that to you. It certainly will. We'll have to ask Joan on the desk if we can borrow the keys for the basement. You have a cover story then, do you? Not as such, said Ranger Hawtrey. I'm not very good at this sort of thing. You could get her chatting and I could steal the keys, said Ranger Hawtrey. It's some sort of plan, I suppose. Or we could just go down into the basement without nicking her keys at all. Don't quite follow you there. We could go down the secret passage. Really not following you there. You mean you don't know about the secret passage? Ranger Hawtrey made another face. Clearly not. But then if it is a secret, sound point, said Johnny. The curator who showed it to me and my dad when I came up here as a child wasn't very good at keeping a secret. Or at least he wasn't very good at keeping one from my daddy, said he. There's always a secret passage. Or a priest hole. Or a skeleton walled up in the cellar. There always is. And that is a tradition. Or an old charter. Or something. The secret passage in Gunnersbury Museum is... Well, I never expected that, said Ranger Hawtrey. Who'd have suspected that the entrance to the secret passage would be there? Who indeed? Johnny led the way. He shone the torch along the brickwork. Where did you get that torch? asked Ranger Hawtrey. Out of your pocket, said Johnny. Good call, said Ranger Hawtrey. Where does this secret passage lead to? They emerged from the secret passage. And who would have expected that? The secret is probably knowing when to stop said Johnny. And it probably is. Please, lead me to the printing machine, said Johnny. And Ranger Hawtrey did so. They had the storeroom lights on now, and much was as Johnny remembered. There were the boxes that contained the remains of wooden stakes that had been driven into the bed of the Thames at Brentford as part of the defense against the army of Julius Caesar. Some beautiful swords that were crafted in Hounslow, in the days when Hounslow was famous for the crafting of swords, there was a famous parrot in a glass dome and a painted portrait of the first man ever to open an umbrella in London, a famous Brentford man. And there was also all that remains of the Lucasade sign, 
the famous one that had the bottle pouring into the glass and all done with light bulbs, each of which was famous in its way. The printing press stood at the far end of the room, between a crate that contained the mummified remains of a two-headed giant and a working model of a perpetual motion machine. Behold, the printing press, said Ranger Hawtrey. Johnny beheld the printing press. He beheld it up close, and in detail. I think you're right, he said. It has been used recently. And yes, he rooted about amidst the mechanical gubbins and brought to light a screwed-up piece of paper. One got stuck in the works. So the letters were printed here. But why here? And by whom? Ranger Hawtrey shrugged. And there's nothing else here, said Johnny. No box of chocolates or signs saying, You have found the printing press. You are now the winner. Mind you, how difficult can it be to find out who did the printing? They must surely have done a lot of printing. That takes time and deliveries of paper and ink. Lots of coming and going. Someone must have seen something. The lady on the desk must have seen them. Let's ask her then, said Ranger Hawtrey. I think it's best that you ask her, Johnny said. She might recognize me. This is really exciting, said Ranger Hawtrey. Secret passage and everything. Brilliant. I'm happy that you're happy. Johnny did some thinking. So this is what I want you to say to the lady on the desk, said he. And he whispered. Why are you whispering? Ranger Hawtrey asked. Johnny sighed. Because it makes it even more exciting, he said. Ah, yes, you're right. Carry on. And Johnny did so. Good plan, said Ranger Hawtrey. And they returned to the secret passage, and from there to the museum proper, and from there to the entrance hall. Joan, the lady on the desk, sat at the desk. She was a fine-looking lady, was Joan. Johnny admired her looks, but he did so in a furtive fashion, with his cap drawn down to hide his face. Out into the sunlight, Joan, the desk lady, was watching TV. She had a little portable jobby. It was her own. She'd brought it in to watch the tennis at Wimbledon, which must have meant that it was that time of year. Well, one of those weeks, actually. Hawtrey went over and had a word with Joan. Actually, he had quite a few words. More words, Johnny felt, than were strictly necessary. But then, Joan, the desk lady, was a fine-looking woman. At due length, Ranger Hawtrey ambled over to Johnny and then led him out of the building, in a rather firm kind of way. Stop pushing me, said Johnny. What did you learn? Quite a lot, said Ranger Hawtrey. But nothing good. Go on. Well, it appears that the printing was carried out under the instructions and supervision of a Mr. James Crawford. Go on. A descendant of the Sir Henry Crawford, who once owned the house and the grounds back in the 18th century. Sir Henry's sons gambled away the family fortune, so by the time James was born, there was no money left. But apparently he did some work, research or something, about the big house here. It's history. And in return, the curator allowed him to use the printing machine for some private project he had. So we have him, said Johnny. Good work. We have the man who printed the competition letters. Well, not exactly. We don't? Not exactly, no. Which is why I led you from the big house. There's been another spot of bother. Go on, said Johnny in a low and sorry tone. Joan was watching the TV, and the news was just on. James Crawford has been murdered this very morning. This very morning? Oh, no. Oh, yes, said Ranger Hawtrey. And apparently, you did it. Chapter 12 What are you going to do? asked Ranger Hawtrey. Give yourself up? Give myself up. And Johnny made that face that Ranger Hawtrey was so good at making. 
That, I have to say, is not an option. Perhaps then you should leave the country. We might alter the uniform you're wearing, make you look like a merchant seaman, and no, said Johnny, in as firm a manner as he could manage. I am not guilty of these crimes, and I'll prove it. All this is connected somehow. Me, the competition, Dr. Archie, James Crawford. This is all part of something big. I'm not altogether certain how you reached that conclusion, Ranger Hawtrey took to steering Johnny off into some bushes. Just stop pushing me about, Johnny made resistance. This is something big. I feel it. I know it. Don't ask me how, but I do. Will you lend me some money? How much money? How much do you have? What do you want it for? Please just give me some money. Ranger Hawtrey parted with what money he had, and Johnny thanked him for it. And then Johnny asked, Do you by any chance know the late Mr. Crawford's address? Joan will know it. Then might you ask her for it? And so Ranger Hawtrey did, and he returned to Johnny with the address upon a slip of paper. Johnny thanked him, and then he said goodbye. You'll be back, won't you? asked Ranger Hawtrey. I hope so. You can sleep in the hut. I won't tell anyone. You can trust me. Thank you, said Johnny. I really appreciate all this. And the two shook hands. Oh, thank you, Ranger Hawtrey. I really appreciate all this. Kiss, kiss, love, love, love. Shut your face, Johnny told Mr. Giggles. Well, it's pathetic. I think that Ranger Hawtrey is not so much a park ranger. He's more of an uphill gardener. He definitely fancies you. Please be quiet, said Johnny. And so now you're going to go to James Crawford's house and immediately get arrested by the police? No, said Johnny. I'm going to the pub. Right, said Johnny. And he sighed. Thank the gods, said O'Fagan as Johnny Hooker entered the bar, collar up and cap peaked down and really in need of a drink. Thank the gods for what? asked Johnny in an Irish accent. Ah, even better, said O'Fagan. A Jewish police officer. Splendid. Johnny Hooker mounted a bar stool and spoke further words from beneath the cover of his cap. Can I help you in some way, sir? he asked. I didn't think they were going to send anyone, said O'Fagan. When I made my report at the police station, they just kept sniggering. I didn't think they'd taken me seriously. Perhaps you'd better begin at the beginning, said Johnny. And please draw me a pint of King Billy whilst you do so. Absolutely, and O'Fagan applied his hand to the pump and his tongue to the telling of stuff. Toward a dark and stormy night, he began. I'll have to stop you there, sir, said Johnny. Was this a recent dark and stormy night? No, this was back in 1938, the night the devil took Robert Johnson's soul in this very bar, sorrowfully. Oh, what sorrowful sighing, said O'Fagan. That would fair have me going if it weren't for the fact that I'm as hard as a marble headstone, me. And he passed Johnny Hooker his beer. On the house, he said. I hope it cheers you up. Thank you very much, said Johnny. Carry on with your story. And then they threw me out of the police station, said O'Fagan. No, said Johnny. Carry on from the point where you left off, in 1938. You sure you don't mind? Not in the least. I have my beer now, and I probably won't be listening anyway. Well, that's a shame, said O'Fagan, because I'd be prepared to share the wealth. Omit nothing, said Johnny. What wealth, he continued. Well, said O'Fagan, Robert Johnson spent the last couple of years of his life living here in this pub. He lived here with this big buck-toothed black man. His brother, I think. Just like me. You are not a black man, said Johnny. Oh, yes, I am, said O'Fagan. Not, said Johnny. Am too. Johnny looked O'Fagan up and down. Well, 
as much up and down as he could from beneath the cover of his cap. Oh, said Johnny. Well, blow me down. So you are. I never noticed before. People rarely do, said O'Fagan. That's what I love about West London. Class, color, or creed mean nothing. A man is accepted for what he is inside. Johnny nodded thoughtfully and didn't laugh at all. But the sun did go behind a cloud and a dog did howl in the distance. So, continued O'Fagan, that bucktooth black chap, he recorded Johnson's 30th song right here in this pub. And you saw this? No, said O'Fagan. I was somewhat handicapped from doing so by the fact that I hadn't been born then. Just testing, said Johnny. For what? asked O'Fagan. Oh, look, said Johnny. My beer is finished already. I wonder how that happened. Probably something to do with the way you've chucked it down your gob. Same again, please. O'Fagan took Johnny's glass and returned to the beer engine and its company. Anyway, he said to Johnny, he was in here last night, asked after my dad, pointed to that picture back there. O'Fagan gestured. Johnny peeped. That's him with my dad. And he hasn't changed at all. How does that work? You tell me. Johnny shook his head. He had never noticed that photo behind the bar before. Next to the one with O'Fagan's dad and Robert Johnson, it was of O'Fagan's dad and what could only be described as a black man with very large teeth. A black man with large teeth who wore a fez and a brightly colored waistcoat. Hold on, said Johnny. He looked exactly the same. Didn't seem to have aged by a day. He said he was looking for Jimmy. Jimmy? Johnny asked. James Crawford, the old drunk fellow who wore the long black coat with the astrakhan collar. Him? said Johnny, who had seen that particular old drunk many a time. That chap was James Crawford? Never a happy man, said O'Fagan. What with his great-great-great-granddaddy doing the family fortune on the roulette wheel at the Monte Carlo. He used to spend most of his days drinking cider in the park and bleeding to passers-by that all the park should have been his. Right, said Johnny. And in all truth, I don't blame him for it. I'd be pretty pissed off if I had rich ancestors and they'd wasted away the family fortune before I'd had a chance to do it myself. Oh, said O'Fagan. Then no one's ever told you about you or what, said Johnny. Nothing, said O'Fagan. I must be thinking about someone else. Because you are a Jewish policeman I've never met before. So, where was I? Oh, yes, the Blackmore with the expansive dentition. He wanted to know where Crawford was, said that Crawford had something of his, and he wanted it back. And if Crawford didn't hand it over, he'd kill him. Do you know where this character is now? On the run from the police for murdering Jimmy Crawford, I should think. Isn't that why you are here? Just trying to get all the relevant information, said Johnny. Whatever happened to your Jewish accent? Acclimatization? Johnny suggested. And that's a very strange police uniform. Special branch, Johnny suggested. It says Gunnersbury Park Ranger on your breast pocket. It says Calvin Klein on my knickers says Johnny, and Keylog on my cornflakes. But I'm sure that's a misspelling. Gunnersbury Park Ranger, said O'Fagan. Special branch, said Johnny. Trees have branches. Special trees have special branches. And there's loads of special trees in Gunnersbury Park. Even one that involves the word minge. I'm sure you'll agree about that. I'm always agreeable, said O'Fagan. You'd be surprised at what I'll agree to after I've had a few gin and tonics. First class toot said Johnny. But I don't know whether it's helping. Talking the toot always helps, said O'Fagan. 
the sound of police car sirens reached the ears of Johnny Hooker. See, said O'Fagan, I told you. What? That talking the toot always helps. I saw you through the window as you were approaching the pub, recognized you at once. There's a reward on your head, so I called the police on my mobile. I've kept you talking the toot in order to give them time to arrive. I expect they'll have the place surrounded by now. I'm really looking forward to spending the reward money. How much reward money? Johnny asked. One thousand pounds, said O'Fagan. That was the wealth that I mentioned, that I was prepared to share. I lied about being prepared to share it, though. One thousand? said Johnny. For one thousand pounds, I'll turn myself in. You can't do that, O'Fagan fell back in alarm. You just watch me, said Johnny, and he put up his hands. But that's not fair, said O'Fagan. I made the police call. I'll give you the money for the call, said Johnny. That's only fair. Thanks, said Fagin. No, hold on. That's not fair. I want the reward money. All of it. Sorry, said Johnny. It's mine. Although... Although what? Well, said Johnny, it's only a thought. I don't know whether you'd be interested. I would, said O'Fagan. I really would. Well, said Johnny once more, if I were to make an escape now, maybe bop you over the head to make it look as if you tried to stop me. I'll bet they'll raise the reward money. Do you really think so? said O'Fagan, scratching at his head. They'd double it, I'd bet, said Johnny. Then you could turn me in at a later date and make twice as much money. Right, said O'Fagan. We have a deal. And he put out his hand for a shake, and Johnny Hooker shook it. I'll show you the secret passage, said O'Fagan. 